National Association for the Visual Arts is the peak body protecting and promoting the professional interests of the Australian visual arts. Nava in Conversation is a series exploring the issues and challenges of working in the sector. We speak with artists, curators and administrators to gain insight into the experiences of contemporary practice and seek to propose ideas for change, progress and resilience in both local and global contexts.
for me, Habitat, this is the second sort of version I've done one before called Habitat Conorido. So for me, it's an ongoing investigation. It's like a series. And this particular iteration for me was about um, covering an area of Bougainville where I was born from the west coast all the way to the centre of the island and just traversing the problematic, I guess you could say, terrain. And for me, uh, Habitat was really about um, like wondering why Bougainville has this problematic history in the Pacific and also how I even came to be in Australia because of the Civil War and it was all about mining really and um, and still to this day it remains unresolved and uh, I've made other works before um, however I really wanted to make something quite epic <laughs> in terms of looking at the way land is represented um, and there's a lot of historical references in this work and I'm not quite sure if it really makes sense to a lot of people but um, for me it was a way to explore how the West looks at land and use uh, archival material and even sounds and make it very immersive. I'm really interested in documenting history and Bougainville's mining history is really tied up with Australian colonial history and um, so for me walking the land back then, photographing it, you know making a work about it, um, I realised I wanted to do video so I went back and one year I took a GoPro and I went to the west coast and um, sort of friends had told me you should go in this toxic swamp and so I went there and it was this unfolding this experience of just being baffled that there was all this destruction and yet no one really knows about it how would they this is very far flung part of the Pacific and so I thought how could I uh, represent this landscape in a way um, that sort of challenged previous perceptions of what how ideal the Pacific Islands are, and really it's not the case. So every year I'd go back with, you know, a different type of camera. Um, so one year I decided I really needed an aerial perspective, so I went back with a drone, <laughs> and um, and that was important because in the Bougainville in Papua New Guinea, um, I guess you could say that first contact between the West and islanders or indigenous people was often through hearing the buzz and the whir of the helicopter blades because we're in such remote island or mountainous regions whereas I found uh, in the sort of I guess indigenous Australian experience you see and you hear stories of first contact being by ship or by boat you know Captain Cook coming into you know these waters. So for us, it's more in Papua New Guinea and Bougainville, the West came, Australian uh, geologists would come in helicopters. So I thought the drone was really, really appropriate tool to use to also involve that experience in the work.
So Habitat also really references Penguin of Mine, which started in the late 60s, early 70s. And Penguin of Mine really uh, began as a way to fund independence for Papua New Guinea. And uh, during 1975, when Papua New Guinea got their independence from the Whitlam government, the Australian government, it was this sort of, this was the period of my father um, and my father's generation where Bougainville honestly thought we would become independent and self-determining. And yet what actually happened was um, the local indigenous landowners rebelled against the mining. So um, for a period of 10 years, there was quite a lot of money going out. Uh, Australian mining companies such as Rio Tinto, they were involved being the main mining company as well. So it's a very complex history between Australia, Papua New Guinea and Bougainville. And at the time I was eight years old and um, you sort of grow up and you see all this sort of industrialization and all these uh, towns come and then you wonder why, what's the problem? And women were actually protesting against the mine. And so I've always known it, but it was quite interesting to see that politically it was such an empowering aspect for not just women, but for the whole of the community, that there were these underlying problems of how mining came to Bougainville. And so today it still remains unresolved where, um, where mining still wants to come back. These multinational companies want to come back and yet the women are protesting against how they come back. Yeah. So the work was really t talking about all these complex status quo and how women have a presence there. And you'll see women go through their daily routines in the, in the video and yet you're, you're unsure why or what are they doing. Visually, uh, the video takes you on a journey through the Bougainville landscape that, um, where you encounter the pit of the mine, but you also travel through the, lower, the middle and lower tailing sections of the site. The mine was an enormous enterprise. It was, as I understand it, one of the largest open-cut mines in the world at the time. Yeah, And it was totally. a mine for copper and gold. And you mentioned that Australia was commercially implicated uh, in that, in the establishment of the mine, in that uh, the company that ran it, Bougainville Copper Limited, was a subsidiary of Rio Tinto, which was part owned by Australia. Can you talk about the scale of the operation in relation to the landscape and what you see visually in the film? Yeah. Um, the operation was like, enormous like as you said uh, and during the 60s and 70s it was so large that it at one point uh, the PNG Kino the currency of Papua New Guinea and Bougainville was stronger than the Australian dollar like there were these yeah I mean I read that and I looked through history a lot and I've read a lot and not only do you live it but you read you know 
annual reports of the mining company uh, and you just think, oh my goodness, it was huge. And so, yeah, the issue for Bougainville people uh, was that so much money was going out, what was actually staying for the island, for the people. Um, the operation was so large that uh, the pit itself, like mining, it, it, Panguna mine, it's quite huge. Like, but then usually mines create dams to, to put the waste. You know. But because we live in, we live in a, I guess, tectonic area and earthquakes happen a lot, they didn't build a dam of the, the issues with the bad dam might break. So basically they just dredged all the waste, all the west coast, onto where communities live, and have lived for thousands of years, and pushed them out onto the margins, and just relocated villages, whole villages. And there would be compensation for, okay, how much is a tree worth, or how much is your plantation, and they might give a few shillings or pounds for that. Um, that was pre-mining, uh, and then post-mining, there would be little bits of compensation. Yeah, so the scale was not only like environmental, but it cut through people's traditional lands, they couldn't farm anymore, or fish, and so they were basically living right on the edge of the mining operations. So the scale, yeah, it was environmental, it was social, it really impacted them. And then later, with the civil war and, and the fighting, there's actually over 10,000 lives that were lost during that whole time, which is more than any other tragic event in the Pacific, you know, since World War II. Kind of. So 10,000 lives is a lot just for one island and it sort of feels like this history has been swept under the carpet in many ways. So there's also the human rights impact, you know, that's, if we talk about scale, we could just like go on and on and on about that. Um, you mentioned uh, the displacement of traditional landowners at the time the mine was built and also the impact on their lifestyle in the 70s and 80s in terms of changes to um, agricultural practices uh, and uh, the way that their, their lifestyles were sustained through different uh, economies, I suppose. Um, but what you see in the video is the enduring impact on their lives now. Could you talk a little about, yeah. about that? Yeah, sure. I mean... Like at one point, Agatau, which you know we're not we're not really introduced to anyone, but I call her Agatha because I know her. But a woman walks across the whole three screens, and it's just barren. Um, and yeah, she's sort of walking away, and she's just walking quite slowly, and she's just quite aimless. You know, and I just thought um, it was important, like as well, to highlight that as much as women are central, you know, to Bougainville's perception on land, because as matrilineal concept um, is explained, is that the land actually is passed through the female line. Uh, 
and yet these women are actually caught in really problematic uh, situations. Yeah. Um, yeah, so then, you know, why is she washing dirt? It's like, well, that's what she does every day. She's washing dirt, looking for gold. This is how um, her ancestors never used to do that. Her ancestors would be farming the land, looking for sweet potato to feed her family. And now in that same landscape, because of mining, she's, she's you know, stuck with nothing but to actually find that because that's now the economy that she's in. You mentioned before this idea of um, Australia being part of the big mine to begin with and I wanted to ask a question about accountability and how we hold companies or governments accountable as well um, and the relationship. Do you see your work playing a role like that because it's been so hidden in some ways and so brushed over and you're bringing that to the forefront? I guess I'm really interested in stories and... um this is an ongoing story that involves, you know, Bougainville isn't just this island in the Pacific suffering on its own. It actually has an Australian history. And as an artist who is an Australian artist, I studied art here, I share Australian heritage, as well as Bougainville heritage, as well as being born from there. I, I feel that Australia is very much implicated. And so, yeah, I just feel that um, making work about ourselves is really important. And even though this feels like it's about mining and companies and governments, it's actually really about people at the end of the day. Um, and we're all implicated in a way. So whatever impact that has, you don't really think about that when you're making or as an artist. It just comes from inside. and and. Um, yeah. What does it mean to be an artist in contemporary Australia now? I think it's a really great time to be an artist. Uh, and, you know, I just spent six months overseas on a residency in Paris. And actually, I'm really happy to come back <laughs> and catch the national. Uh, yeah, it's the national being part of the exhibition, the first them is and being surrounded by such amazing artists has really made me aware that as an artist or Australian or contemporary artist they're really important discussions sort of I guess my practice is really around um, how, how to how to communicate ideas in new and interesting ways and for me as an islander Pacific Islander who also is indigenous. I'm also interested in getting out of these boxes, and I think most other artists who are indigenous contemporary artists understand that we don't like being boxed as you know what is traditional. <laughs> so to be asked by Annika from you know, International Art, I was like, great, I want to be in these global discussions um, around everything, you know, like land identity. Uh, politics rather than 
you know, 15, 20 years ago when I was studying art, and even just coming back from Europe, you see that there are traditional ways of boxing people into, you know, what is primitive arts or oceanic arts or, yeah, much more interested in the future of global and international art, I guess. So my specialism is definitely contemporary Australian art. Of course, that art circulates within a radically globalised uh, economy, um, but that's not a democratic space. And uh, as much as uh, dialogues around centre and periphery feel quite hackneyed, I think uh, there's still a necessity to consider um, uh, the hierarchies and the spatial dynamics and the power dynamics that structure the way Australian art circulates within the world at large. I'm especially committed to working here. I think that uh, the practice that is made here is incredibly rich, uh, incredibly sophisticated and important, and uh, my my commitment as a curator is to work with the artists, uh, and particularly the artists of my generation, my peers, uh, who are making work in this place. And one of the things that I think um, the selection of works at the gallery for the national shows uh, is that artists, despite this um, intense period of globalisation that we've all lived through, are very interested in the particularities of place and in locality. And many of the works draw out very um, deep narratives that are about particular locations uh, and the historical events that have shaped those places, both in terms of the landscape itself, but also the lives of the people who live there. So the research process for the exhibition uh, was quite broad. Uh, I travelled around the country, as did my colleagues from the MCA and Carriage Works. Uh, and I was able, through that process, to discover many artists and practices that I um, had not yet been exposed to, that were new to me, and that was an incredibly exciting uh, dimension of the project. Tallow's work I was familiar with uh, through prior exhibitions, but we hadn't met before. Uh, so it's been incredibly rich and sustaining to develop these new relationships and new conversations with artists like Tallow through the project that I imagine and I hope will have a much longer life beyond the show. I was particularly interested in, in Tallow's work because uh, she brings an embedded perspective uh, to these questions around the, the geopolitical relationship between Australia and the Pacific uh, that incorporates Indigenous knowledge, uh, the lived experience of growing up in Bougainville but also now being based between there and Australia, and the particular way in which she is envisioning that landscape through her work using video. One of the ambitions for the National is to be able to support artists to make major new works uh, through a commissioning process. Uh, and that's not the case uh, with our relationship with every artist, but for Tallow's project, uh, we were able to support her to travel back to Bougainville on quite an extensive film shoot with uh, crew. 
which I think um, enabled her to imagine this work in a particularly ambitious way. Yeah, the commissioning aspect, I was able to say, look, this is where I want to take it. I would like to take Mandy uh, and Fabio, who I worked with, um, Amanda King and Fabio Cavadini, who I've known since I was quite young, and they've made uh, Evergreen Island as well. And then later I, I also asked, look, I haven't made anything this epic before, and I thought, I need a good crew. And so I was able to, within that commissioning budget, put aside for sound. And so I was able to get sound designer Michael Tosuda, and it was just fantastic to work with a crew. It's, yeah, it just really enriched my whole experience in how to make uh, such a, for me, I feel like it's quite high-end work. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it was, I don't know what else I could say. It was just like a perfect opportunity to extend and, and build on my practice. Uh, the idea, as you mentioned, was to uh, invest in and support and facilitate artists to think at a certain scale uh, and to be ambitious in the concept of their work as much as the realisation. So while there are works yeah. that are scaled, uh, sort of epically scaled, I suppose there are also works that are quite modest in that regard. For instance, Khaled Sabsabi's series of painted photographs. Uh, but we were interested in uh, enabling uh, a kind of depth and rigour uh, in artistic process by bringing the, the resources of an institution like the gallery uh, to those artists' practices. I worked really closely here at the gallery with Wayne Tunnicliffe, the head of Australian Art, uh, and we worked uh, with our peers from the MCA and Carriage Works, Blair French, at MCA, Nina Mayo and Lisa Havila at Carriage Works. And it was such a pleasure to engage in a sustained dialogue with them over a period of about 18 months. Um, that was more intensive in the developmental phase where we were sharing uh, aspects of our conversations with artists, collectively working through the different ideas that were emerging from the practice uh, that we felt could cohere into particular strands within the exhibition that might make connections across venues. Um, and then of course in the final stages of the show we were each responsible for executing the logistics uh, of, of making an exhibition within our own venues. This particular work that's here in the National, because this has been um, a sustained process of making, I want to ask um, where how do you think that work will evolve next? And is this documentation and research and history something that you'll continue to undertake? Yeah, that's definitely the idea. So um, I don't really know. <laughs> I think it's about a lot about feeling and like I'll, I'll go back this year. And when you, yeah, so documenting is really just being around and seeing things change and deciding how and how you feel about it and how you present that change uh, and yeah we'll see I don't, I, I don't know the answer to that and I've got to keep it completely open Head to our website visualarts.net.au for more information on NAVA's advocacy and campaigns for improving the working environment for Australian artists and arts organisations <laughs>